0: For four centuries. So, who was quietly preserving it for four hundred years, and why did it so abruptly return to prominence in the sixth decade of the nineteenth century in a country two thousand miles away? Why, come to that, did the Americans save such good old English words as skedaddle and chitterlings and chore, but not fortnight or heath? Why did they keep the irregular British pronunciations in words like colonel and hearth? but go our own way with lieutenant and schedule and clerk. Why, in short, is American English the way it is? This is, it seems to me, a profoundly worthwhile and fascinating question, and yet, until relatively recent times, it is one that hardly anyone thought to ask. Until well into this century, serious studies of American speech were left almost entirely to amateurs, people like the heroic Richard Harwood Thornton, an English-born lawyer who devoted years of his spare time to poring through books, journals, and manuscripts from the earliest colonial period in search of the first appearances of hundreds of American terms. In 1912, he produced the two-volume American Glossary. It was a work of invaluable scholarship, yet he could not find a single American publisher prepared to take it on. Eventually, to the shame of American scholarship, It was published in London. Not until the 1920s and 30s with the successive publications of H. L. Mencken's incomparable The American Language, George Philip Crap's The English Language in America, and Sir William Craigie and James R. Hulbert's Dictionary of American English on Historical Principles, did America at last get books that seriously addressed the question of its language. But by then, the inspiration behind many hundreds of American expressions had passed into the realms of the unknowable, so that now no one can say why Americans paint the town red, talk turkey, take a powder, or hit practice flies with a fungo bat. This book is a modest attempt to examine how and why American speech came to be the way it is. It is not, I hope, a conventional history of the American language, Much of it is unashamedly discursive. You could be excused for wondering what Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish's running over her servant three times in succession with her car has to do with the history and development of the English language in the United States, or how James Gordon Bennett's lifelong habit of yanking the cloths from every table he passed in a restaurant connects to the linguistic development of the American people.' I would argue that unless we understand the social context in which words were formed, unless we can appreciate what a bewildering novelty the car was to those who first encountered it, or how dangerously extravagant and out of touch with the masses a turn-of-the-century business person could be, we cannot begin to appreciate the richness and vitality of the words that make American speech. Oh, and I've included them for a third reason. "'because I thought they were interesting and hoped you might enjoy them. "'One of the small agonies of researching a book like this "'is that you come across stories that have no pressing relevance to the topic "'and must be let lie. "'I call them Ray Boudewick stories. "'I came across Ray Boudewick when I was thumbing through a 1941 volume "'of Time magazines looking for something else altogether.' It happened that one day in that year, Budewick decided, as he often did, to take his light aircraft up for an early Sunday morning spin. Nothing remarkable in that, except that Budewick lived in Honolulu, and that this particular morning happened to be the 7th of December, 1941. As he headed out over Pearl Harbor, Budewick was taken aback, to say the least, to find the western skies dense with Japanese zeros all bearing down on him. The Japanese raked his plane with fire, and Buduik, presumably issuing utterances along the lines of, Golly, Moses! banked sharply and cleared off. Miraculously, he managed to land his plane safely in the midst of the greatest airborne attack yet seen in history and lived to tell the tale and in so doing became the first American to engage the Japanese in combat, however inadvertently. Of course, this has nothing at all to do with the American language, but everything else that follows does. Honestly. Chapter 1 The Mayflower and Before The image of the spiritual founding of America that generations of Americans have grown up with was created, oddly enough, by a poet of limited talents, to put it in the most magnanimous possible way, who lived two centuries after the event in a country three thousand miles away. Her name was Felicia Dorothea Hemans, and she was not American but Welsh. Indeed, she had never been to America, and appears to have known next to nothing about the country. It just happened that one day in 1826 her local grocer in North Wales wrapped her purchases in a sheet of two-year-old newspaper from Massachusetts, and her eye was caught by a small article about a Founder's Day celebration in Plymouth. It was very probably the first she had heard of the Mayflower or the Pilgrims, but inspired as only a mediocre poet can be, she dashed off a poem, the Landing of the Pilgrim Fathers in New England, which begins, The breaking waves dashed high on a stern and rock-bound coast, and the woods against a stormy sky their giant branches tossed, and the heavy night hung dark, the hills and water o'er, when a band of exiles moored their bark on the wild New England shore. And continues, in a vigorously grandiloquent, indeterminately rhyming vein, for a further eight stanzas. Although the poem was replete with errors, the Mayflower was not a bark, it was not night when they moored, Plymouth was not where first they trod, but in fact their fourth landing site, it became an instant classic, and formed the essential image of the Mayflower landing that most Americans carry with them to this day. Mrs. Heman's other principal contribution to posterity was the poem "'Casa Bianca,' now remembered chiefly for its opening line, "'The boy stood on the burning deck.'" The one thing the Pilgrim certainly didn't do was step ashore on Plymouth Rock. Quite apart from the consideration that it may well have stood high above the high-water mark in 1620, no prudent mariner would try to bring a ship alongside a boulder on a heaving December sea when a sheltered inlet beckoned from nearby. Indeed, it is doubtful that the Pilgrims even noticed Plymouth Rock. No mention of the rock is found among any of the surviving documents and letters of the age, and it doesn't make its first recorded appearance until 1715, almost a century later. Not until about the time Mrs. Hemans wrote her swooping epic did Plymouth Rock become indelibly associated with the landing of the Pilgrims. Wherever they first trod, we can assume that the 102 Pilgrims stepped from their storm-tossed little ship with unsteady legs and huge relief. They had just spent nine and a half damp and perilous weeks at sea, crammed together on a creaking vessel about the size of a modern double-decker bus. The crew, with the customary graciousness of sailors, referred to them as puke-stockings on account of their apparently boundless ability to spatter the latter with the former, though, in fact, they had handled the experience reasonably well. Only one passenger had died en route, and two had been added through berths, one of whom reveled ever after in the exuberant name of Oceanus Hopkins. They called themselves saints. Those members of the party who were not saints they called strangers, Pilgrims, in reference to these early voyagers, would not become common for another two hundred years. Nor, strictly speaking, is it correct to call them Puritans. They were separatists, so-called because they had left the Church of England. Puritans were those who remained in the Anglican Church but wished to purify it. They would not arrive in America for another decade, but when they did, they would quickly eclipse and eventually absorb this little original colony it would be difficult to imagine a group of people more ill-suited to a life in the wilderness. They packed as if they had misunderstood the purpose of the trip. They found room for sundials and candle-snuffers, a drum, a trumpet, and a complete history of turkey. One William Mullins packed 126 pairs of shoes and 13 pairs of boots. Yet between them they failed to bring a single cow or horse or plough, or fishing line. Among the professions represented on the Mayflower's manifest were two tailors, a printer, several merchants, a silk worker, a shopkeeper, and a hatter. Occupations whose importance is not...